Hello, this is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast, and I want to thank you for joining me. You can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. This podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. So I want to talk about our sponsor today, which is FHE Health. I've talked about them before, a bunch of good people down in Florida. And um, this is a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for first responders' needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance abuse. So take the first step today for a better life by visiting FHEHealth.com. That's FHEHealth.com. And folks, I have with us today Dustin Hawkins, who is a uh, uh, chaplain and a firefighter down in Indian River County in Florida. And this is going to be part of an ongoing series that we have for um, the topic of suicide, which is a very, very big topic these days, particularly a year into this pandemic. It's always been an issue in the military, always been an issue for first responders, but it seems to be coming uh, or is becoming a bigger issue the longer and longer we have the lockdowns and the pandemic. And I, I tell you that in my own personal life, I have seen more uh, suicide uh, occur this year than any year of my 55-year-old life. And that's not good. It's not a good thing. And so although it's not a real cheery topic, let's say, but it's a very necessary topic. And since I talk about addiction, alcohol, prescription, uh, drug abuse, and, and other addictions as well, depression, suicide, is always uh, something that is in the shadows somewhere. And I wanted to talk about this today and talk uh, about the talk or get into this topic with somebody that knows a lot more about it than I do, and that is uh, Dustin Hawkins. And Dustin, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really uh, look forward to enjoyed uh, a lot of your different uh, varieties of podcasts here and uh, had the opportunity here to connect with you through uh, Jeremy Hurt and through Kathy Hurt through the uh, FHE uh, Chatterproof program and just appreciate the opportunity to connect. And uh, I was uh, smiling and honored at the same time, shaking my head when you said that you're talking to somebody who knows uh, a lot more about the, the human condition and cycle. Uh, I, that's not, not true. I really look up to you and appreciate uh, the knowledge base that you bring very, very much. Oh, well, th- thank you so much. And I and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. I understand you're getting ready for a wedding down there in Florida and you got like 22 cops and firefighters crawling over your property there. And so you're <laughs> a busy guy and you found a quiet place to take the time to talk to us. And, and we certainly appreciate that. So if you would kind of Tell us how we got here. What's your what's your connection to this topic of, of suicide? Well, uh, as they say, each each day leads you hopefully to tomorrow. Uh, so 20, uh, 20 years now, uh, I've been uh, a first responder here uh, in the uh, state of Florida, Indiana County Fire Rescue. We're located on the uh, East Coast here, right in the Treasure Coast. Uh, started out, uh, uh, you know, in the fire service with uh, really wanting to delve in and dive in, no pun intended, to special ops, specifically the Marine Division, uh, doing, uh, you know, UCSI, body recovery, rough surf rescue. Uh, you know, it was nothing like the brochure had originally panned out. You know, originally it showed the, the nice little uh, martini glass and umbrella and white sand beach with Bahamian clear water. Uh, but, uh, you know, you quickly learned uh, that, that uh, that's only for the uh, recruiting process. Uh, but the rest of it's all, uh, you know, black water diving, zero visibility, body recovery, and all the stuff that, you know, if they told you what you were going to do, you wouldn't sign up for it initially. Uh, and uh, just spent a lot of years, uh, you know, taking every oddball op that we could, uh, you know, as it was a thing of honor. You know, not realizing the entire way that, you know, you're building a pretty diverse library 
of, uh, of trauma. Uh, it's, not, it's not the type of diversity that you really want to strive for in life. Um, and, uh, you know, 20 years ago uh, in the fire service uh, was, was really a, a time of states that's really only passed, you know, five to seven years, specifically in the state of Florida, as mental health, resiliency, mindfulness, tactical breathing, grounding exercises, cognitive behavioral therapy, those things have been applied to the fire service. So just kind of give that mindset of when we got on, basically you, you did the down and dirty and you didn't talk about feelings. Dang sure didn't. Um, you know, we didn't understand why the, the leadership that we were following, the company officers, the engineers, uh, the operators, we didn't, we didn't really understand why they were, you know, drowning themselves in a 750, a jack every night and why they were on their second and third marriage. We just assumed, you know, they had a high tolerance for alcohol. We wanted to be like them and they pick crappy spouses. We didn't realize it was a heck of a lot more dynamic than that. But, um, Fast forward about 15 years, uh, spending uh, 13 of those years straight uh, at one of our fire stations. Uh, that's one of the that was the busiest in the county. You know, they're running. You know, their their low cycle calls were about 14 in a 24 hour period. Their medium cycles between two units that's typically around 20 to 23 calls per shift. Uh, and uh, just really, uh, you know, that that ride or die, you know, uh, party hard lifestyle where you're. Uh, you know, up all day, up all night, and then you're the first crew when you get relieved. That's breaking the inlet, you know, in the morning, cracking up a case of beer and partying all day, and you know, until you have to come back to work. Um, and uh, what it what it happened is it's really deconditioned, um, you know, desensitized me and didn't see the small changes. You know, it's kind of like watching a garden grow. Uh, you don't see it when you're living in it, uh, but when you come back and visit after tenure and time away, you're really impressed with the growth or overgrowth or what's happened to your garden. Um, and really the culmination of that was, uh, being trapped on a fireboat. And I've talked about this in other podcasts that, um, I'm sure the, the listeners, uh, can, can Google, uh, to, to find out and, you know, about uh, different podcasts that I've done. And, uh, the short abridged cliff notes version, uh, is I got trapped on our fireboat in your county fire rescue while doing an annual service, uh, and maintenance. And, um, my crew, uh, and I were finishing up for the evening and, uh, we had an ignition, uh, in the boat, we had a fuel leak that we had we weren't aware of. The uh, the vessel had had a long term slow fuel leak in one of its welds and saturated the hull, the foam, uh, with with a couple hundreds of ga- gallons of gas. Uh, we had no idea because it was sitting on the trailer and we just we weren't aware. And uh, went to go m- remove a pump and there was an ignition in the bilge and I was inside of the service area of the bilge and my crew got to watch me burn. We had an ignition, and, uh, I sustained second third degree burns uh, from my waist up. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, great, makes for great Halloween parties, as we say, you know, my, my arms are all xenograft and pigskin, you know, much to my uh, wife's not sense of humor, but to the firefighter's sense of humor, even when I came back to work, you know, they, they found out I had pigskin on and they bought me, you know, a 10 pound thing of bacon and made a bacon man for the first time I came back, you know, firefighter. Yeah, only first responders you know, like, would do that. That's a, yeah, that's a very oh, dark yeah. humor that most people don't <laughs> yes. understand. Yes, which we'll talk about that a little bit too about the yeah. science between behind Gallo's humor and, and how important it is to understand the basis and reasoning and when it's okay and when it's not. Um, but uh, yeah, they they made me a bacon man and you know pork rinds and and crackling and all kinds of stuff. So that's a gift that keeps on giving. But uh, you know, going through the process of spending uh, you know uh, several weeks in the burn unit, uh, you know, getting your really your upper, you know, really redefining your upper limits of what pain is, you know, and as a as a firefighter, it's one of those things, you know, you never really address the fact that you can be injured. We're always trained to be safe and trained to be predictable and reliable and efficient. You never really train and think you're going to get hurt. Um, 
but, uh, you know, really redefining my upper level limits of pain. And I've, I've been injured on the job before, you know, broken bones and uh, fractured face. And, you know, very early on, we have at a fire college, uh, even coming into the fire service, we had a hose break. Uh, and when it broke, when the, uh, <laughs> the gate split, I uh, missed one fireman and I ended up being the one to catch it in the face. Uh, three inch hose hit me in the face, brass coupling and shattered mandible maxilla left orbit, knocked all my teeth out. So, you know, all of the, the years of being in the fire service, I had gone through a lot of different surgeries, putting my head and face back together and all my teeth in. Uh, so I, I had pretty thought I had a grasp on what pain was. And uh, there's a very underappreciated organ, your skin. Uh, you don't appreciate it until you lose it. And you damn sure don't appreciate it until you get it ripped off your body every day for a couple weeks in a row. Uh, just so they can get you to good tissue to mount, you know, big skin to you. The whole time, it's just like first responders are, we're always wired on how can we get back in the uniform, back on the job, provide for our families, you know, and that, that, that mentality, that hardwiring is part of who we are. It's not by choice. And you can't just fake it till you make it. Uh, you either have that or you don't. And, uh, you know, the wonderful clinicians at the burn unit had told me, um, listen, uh, you need to, talk to a, you need to talk to a psychologist. We have a doc here. I'd like you to talk to him. You know, as a as a firefighter, we don't need to do that. We don't talk about feelings. My feelings are fine. Just fix my skin. Um, you know, and I had ignored it and, uh, you know, really, really pushed to get back on the job as fast as I could. And the challenge is uh, I had some uh, life-triggering events. Uh, like I said, if anybody wants to hear about the details, they can Google other podcasts because part of your resiliency cycle is knowing when to take the uh, safety mechanism off and be present in the moment or go back in the past. Um, and the the short version of it is, is I had a very similar call that I ran as an officer uh, that triggered it, triggered all of the memories, all of the nightmares, all of the components. And after spending uh, several months of uh, not being able to stop crying, um, you know, drinking a 750 of rum every two days just so I could feel numb and normal, uh, it, uh, it finally hit that point, that apex, that musical note where my pride, my passion, and my sense of purpose was was challenged yanked out from underneath i didn't think I'd, i would get better it's for lack of a better word when we talk about suicide prevention classes and we tell leaders and we tell firefighters and we tell families um human beings are resilient by design and you can go through a lot of trauma man you can go through some trauma and your body can heal incredibly well um, but uh, if you lose hope if you fracture your hope that tomorrow that the next moment the next minute can be better than what it is now and it's a, it's a dark place to live in well my hope was yanked out from underneath me uh, I had reached out for help through our, our EAP program and, and, and uh, remembered the call like it was yesterday and, uh, you know, calling the 1-800 number and just pouring the heart out saying, yeah, I want to stop crying. Uh, every day I'm seeing things when I'm awake that I know not that, that, that that's not there. You know, I'm seeing kids that I put in body bags that are following me around the grocery store. I'm, I, I go to cut a piece of rotisserie chicken and I throw up because I think it'll last two dozen adults that I've had to pull their rib cages out of mangled airplane wrecks and stuff them back into a zipper bag and then fly them out. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't function. I don't have a bit to talk to. I feel alone and I fall asleep. I'm, I'm having nightmares about lighting my wife and daughter on fire. When I'm at work, I, I don't sleep for, for the entire 24 hour shift. Every time the tones go off, my skin grass hurt, truly hurt. And I'm just tired of death. I'm tired of being the center and messenger of everybody's worst day when shit happens. It's, it's because I'm there. And I, 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 there's not enough liquor in the world. There's not enough. I can't run far enough. I can't fish enough. I can't build enough. It just won't go away. 
I can't run any more from this. And I remember, you know, hearing a therapist on the other end of the phone, which, you know, God love her, the, the poor young lady was, uh, you know, an undergrad student that was just happened to manning, you know, the, the phone lines, as they say. Um, and she was crying after me just unloading for 45 minutes straight. And of course, she, you know, tells me, uh, you know, hey, I, I'm, I'm not a therapist. I actually just a call taker, but I can get in touch with a therapist. You know, remember that first time, that feeling of, oh, my God, are you kidding me? I got to tell this again. I took, took every bit of fiber I had just to let this out. And, um, you know, during that process of finding that our EAP and Indian River County Fire Rescue at the time, I want to be clear, at the time, now it's phenomenal. But at the time was, was universally, and I thought it was just, we just really, really were terrible at it. And we were, but I thought Indian River was the only one that was terrible. Uh, working at the, the, the micro, then macro, and mezzanine and state level, finding out that we had an endemic problem. We, we, we really, really had a issue that was running across the board of just having an EAP minimum checklist. You know, we, 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 they can call a number, you can talk to somebody and they'll get you a doctor. It was good enough. And it wasn't. That's why suicide was dominating the first responder field. It's because we weren't making it aware. We weren't making, you know, making it accessible to culturally competent clinicians. And we weren't even normalizing the conversation between each other. Um, you know, they, uh, they had sent me to a child psychiatrist. Uh, I kid you not. This is the first clinician they sent mm. me to. Uh, was at a health department. Nothing wrong with health department. No, nothing wrong, wrong with accessible health care. But sent me to a health department to talk to a child psychiatrist. And I, you know, I remember walking in as a firefighter, going, "Man, I, I can't stop crying. I feel broken. I feel weak. I feel like an absolute coward." Um, I remember sitting in the room and seeing all the kids' toys, going, "Man, I, I, I thought that you know, when you go to a psychiatrist or a head head doctor, they, you know, talk to you about your childhood. I guess they're going way back, you know." I, I didn't know how this worked. I didn't even know what the subconscious was or, you know, it let, let alone <laughs> why am I crying? And um, so we sat down and spoke with it. We spoke with her and, and talked with the, the clinician for a little bit. And after about a half hour, I remember him saying, you know, I think you have PTSD and, and you know, your, your grass look great. You mind if I touch your scars? You know, and I can tell you, oh, that's a terrible thing to ask somebody. Number one, you better have a damn good relationship. If you're going to have to touch somebody's scars. Uh, and I wasn't in the place to, respectfully allow that and it just realized this isn't for me and she even said i think i need to get you to somebody that specializes in ptsd i don't i don't know how to help you and uh after three different clinicians went to the child psychiatrist i went to a marriage counselor that said well i don't know how you got here i really don't do this and then the last one um just said I i'm just going to give you medication i don't know how to handle this um you know i gave up i gave up hope and you know when people talk about suicide and suicide prevention and awareness and they look at that snapshot of that first responder, that veteran's life, um, you know, as they go through the stages of grief, which, you know, we can all read the stages of grief. And I can tell you, they're not linear. And sometimes you're going to hit multiple ones multiple times. As they look back at somebody who's completed, not committed, it's not illegal to take your own life. And if anybody listening to this podcast right now, when you're talking to somebody who's asking for help or sitting around the kitchen table at a firehouse and having a conversation with somebody who's lost their battle with anxiety, depression, or has completed suicide. Watch how you speak about this because people are listening. And if you have a conversation of saying, golly, man, you believe that? That guy suck started a gun and committed suicide. What a coward. You're part of the problem. Yeah, I agree. To sit down yeah. and say that they committed a crime, show me a Florida statute or a state statute in any one of this, the states in this country that says it's illegal. It's not. Is it heartbreaking? Yes. Does it have fractures that run deep as cuts could be in a community that have ripple effects for generations to come? You're dang right it does. 
But just how you speak about it will make you more open, understanding, or ready, or better prepared now, even if you have a crisis in your life. So the reason I bring this up is people say, wow, what a coward. They committed suicide. No, they completed suicide. And what I didn't realize is that for first responders, when we take that look, doing psychological autopsies in the last couple days, weeks, months of their lives, when people say, man, we just saw, we just saw him or her yesterday. They were doing so great. They were laughing. They were engaging. They had an awesome time. And then they went out and shot themselves in the head or hung themselves or overdosed. They seemed so great. Well, listen, the reason that they seem so great is the same reason that I've seen it a thousand times over now of working with first responders, talking with them through their journey from pain to struggle, from, 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 from growth to grief to suicide, to their attempt, to the given their second chance at life, or their third chance, or their fourth chance, that the reason that they become very, very, very overtly uh, accessible or happy or, or, or engaged on the last days of their life, if you don't have the conversation of saying, I noticed a change, what's happened? doesn't mean, oh my God, you got happy. We, we got to go 911 and, you know, take all the sharp objects out of the house and put the child protective locks on the cabinets and, you know, take your knife away and give you a swim noodle. No. If you see a change, much like what happened in my life, and we've seen with hundreds of other firefighters over the past years, it's because they, although may have lost hope, they finally had control of something in their life again. When they had been, they felt so out of control for so long. Doesn't mean that they reached out for help and didn't get the right help. Doesn't mean that you didn't do enough. Doesn't mean that 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 you weren't there and present. Look, we can't read each other's minds, but we can ask. Um, and there's two questions that, that were asked to me the day that I uh, attempted to kill myself, and I, and I got caught. Um, you know, that's one of the things, you know, we tell people you're going to see signs and symptoms in a first responder's life that, that may be a sign that there's a struggle or maybe a cry for help, which isn't the same thing. Uh, and, and it's time to ask and engage with them, um, be present with them. Um, there's two questions that were asked. The day that I attempted to complete suicide, when I realized that at that point to be true, and it's not, but at that point, I believed it to be true that there was no clinician, there was no program. I wasn't going to go through the 1-800 number again because I had called the first time, found a clinician, thought I had a good relationship, and then found out that my county hadn't paid their EAP bill in many years. Oh Bear in mind, gosh. this is old Indian River County. The new Indian River County has great administration, fantastic relationship with risk, and the, the IAFF and the FPF, and really comes together to encompass and encapsulate those firefighters to meet the, the Senate Bill 376 and get this compensatable, understandable, reasonable injury of being immersed in trauma taken care of. Our old county, well, there's a reason our past uh, uh, executive level uh, chiefs are now uh, in, in, in prison and indicted. Um, because they did some really bad things. They were there, and, and it turned a blind eye, much like in suicide awareness. Don't turn a blind eye. When you see something that's wrong, do something about it. And if you don't know what to do, find the people that do. And at the time, they'd give me the wrong EAP number, and I had to start all over from square one, and mm. I'd given up hope. I gave up hope. And for, for weeks, I gave up. I, 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 it was not going to get better. Tomorrow was not going to be a bright day. There was no reason to find positivity. I didn't have any immersive, successful tools to break that cycle and had no desire to find him anymore because I had already reached out and felt like a failure for having to have reached out because clearly no other firefighters around me ever needed this, this broken EAP system, not realizing that other people have had it, have needed it, and have used it. But I didn't know because I didn't ask because I wasn't communicating about it. Because you don't talk about feelings in the fire service. It's not the F word that you use. <laughs> we know that's true. different. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. We know it's different now. My world is the same. Yeah. Now. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and my dad's a law enforcement officer of 30 years. You know, feelings had no play. There's no, there's no feelings in baseball and there's no feelings in a firefighter or a cop, right? Exactly. But, but um, the, the reason that, that you see first responders, and we really drill into this with, with Jeremy Hurd and the Hurd group and the educational processes, is that we, we drill into this for a very, very clear and concise purpose. When you see a change, either to the negative, their baseline has shifted, or to the positive, they've gone from very, very distressed, withdrawn, retracted, to all of a sudden they go on that evening bender party. Okay, um, Pay attention. Be willing to say something, do something, engage, and know where to get them if they answer and you ask the big three questions. you feeling like killing yourself. Do you have the means, mechanism, and do you have a plan to carry it out? Um, the evening uh, and even the day of me uh, attempting to take my own life, um, I felt good. I mean, I, I had gone and, and, and gotten all the credit cards taken care of, gotten all the debt transferred, made sure my life insurance policies were in order, made sure the codes to the safe were correct, uh, made sure all the cash and all the belongings I had were in one spot. You know, my wife's at the grocery store, and here I am planning on a way to try and take care of her because I truly felt like I was a failure. I felt like a piece of crap husband, a terrible father, the worst fireman ever because nobody else is having a struggle with this job. Everybody gets on the truck, they show up to work sober, they're doing great. Not realizing that, man, being a human, dealing with the human condition and being in the human service and going through trauma for a third of your life and then coming back like a light switch on, off, on, off, over and over and over again and truly sustaining by definition a moral injury. Training to obtain stabilizing every event, every call, and making it better. That's just not reasonable. It's not how it works. doesn't mean you shouldn't train. doesn't mean you should be the best you can be and always expand, but I didn't know what a moral injury was, let alone what feelings were. And, um, you know, I, 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 looking at it now, and people say, man, what a weak person for attempting to kill themselves or completing suicide. They don't think about their kids. They don't think about their wife. They don't think about all the gifts and blessings they had in their life. Listen, you're in a dark place. It doesn't mean that it's truly devoid of light. It means that they can't see it anymore. It doesn't make them broken. It makes them human. And I finally had control over something. Finally. Everybody needs a purpose. It's what makes you feel good, gives you a cause, gives you something to aim for. And um, I, I truly felt that my family would be better off and taken better care of uh, and gone through the entire cycle. I'm not going to shoot myself in the head. You know, I don't want my wife to see that. I'm not going to hang myself. I don't want to be frothy in the mouth and hanging from a paddle fan. I can't figure out why every time you go into a suicide, how you can try and hang a paddle fan in a hurry and the damn thing won't stay on the ceiling by that stupid hook that's supposed to allow you to give enough room to wire the neutral and hot, but you can hang a 16-year-old from it from their pants belt and the damn thing's still running and won't fall. You know, I'm not going to overdose because everybody that overdoses ends up between their shower and their toilet face down, ass up. But the reason we say these things is not because we want to be graphic. It's because we know it and we've seen it so many times that you see the implications, the impact, and the after effects of the family. How it sounds when the mom's screaming down the hallway or yelling over a bridge for her son that just fell 75 feet and broke their neck and you're trying to reconstruct their face and wash out brain matter out of their eye sockets with a plastic cup on a boat deck before they see their loved one again. The same feeling and chill in the room when somebody shoots themselves with a 12-gauge shotgun, the smell of iron and, 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 and gunpowder, and somebody's gasping agonal with a hole through their skull and a gaping wound through their neck from the entry point. It's not because we want to think of these things like a Stephen King novel. It's because we've seen them so many times, and we've tried to ignore them to pretend like we're numb to it for performance-based objectives to be met. 
So when we think about that on our last day, there's a reason. If you're a first responder out there right now listening to this, there's a reason when you have a fight with your spouse, when you have a disagreement with your child, when a bill can't be met, when you have a a discipline at work, all of a sudden your mind goes to worst case scenario, trauma, drama, trigger to where it's the worst case no matter what. It's because that's what you've been conditioned to respond and operate in. But the problem is when we're not on duty, when we don't have our crew, we don't have the company, we don't have the tools, we don't have the SOGs, and it happens in your personal life, that's why it's so dangerous. Hmm. So the the, the way is not to avoid and run from it. It's to acknowledge where those thoughts and memories are coming from and partner up with a trained peer. Partner up with a culturally competent clinician to drill down and build in those resiliency recognition skills ahead of time for when those thoughts flood in to recognize where they may be coming from, acknowledging their impacts on your moment, investigating whether or not they're useful to you and getting back and grounding in that present moment, whether it's steering away from addictive behaviors, whether it's substance or whether it's behaviors outwardly, inwardly, overtly, and being in that moment and recognizing that this isn't the worst day, that there is another minute that's coming, the sun is going to rise tomorrow, and you have an opportunity to greet it, but it's not a given. So how are we going to be present? I didn't know all of those tools because we never talked about that in the fire service. I mean, God, we were always taught if something happened, we were taught minimum standards, brother. It said, if you're experiencing a psychological stressful incident, perhaps try going to a slow, slower station or taking time off from work. My God, go to a place of isolation and inactivity or remove yourself from the hazard. We know it doesn't take somebody to be versed in the DSM-5 or the, the life-changing event scale to know that isolation and separation from pride and passion and purpose is the last thing you do. Now, I'm not saying stay at a busy house and close up like a clamshell. Talk, communicate, connect, redirect. I didn't know that. And with myself and with other firefighters that I've worked with personally that have, even after working with them, have still completed suicide or some that have reignited their lives again, um, that moment of suicide, of you overriding your innate desire to survive. This is one of the things we do in the class. I actually bring in a frag grenade, deactivate it. I love doing that, Bring it, going into classrooms at government buildings and you walk with a frag grenade clipped to your backpack. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's obviously a training tool, but it's amazing. We're in a day and age where people say, hey, we need you to make sure you uh, sanitize your hands before you come in. But yeah, but the ordinance on my backpack doesn't alarm you, but if I sneeze, you'll hit the deck. I got <laughs> I it. Know. You know, but that, that's, a, that's a whole different podcast. Yeah, it is. To, 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 to be able to, to walk in and one of the tools we do about suicide prevention is we start the class out with how many of you think completing suicide is an act of cowardice now in the fire service and law enforcement that that wind that wind that trade wind has changed corrected the ship because previously everybody had raised their hand what we're finding now is is they're realizing that their own interactions and intersections with suicidal ideation and understanding ideation and intent are two different things and where they come from and understanding that the library of trauma that you deal in is why your brain always goes to the worst possible scenario first and you try and find a way to mitigate and prevent it. And more often than not, don't even interact in the dance of conversation with your family on how you are thinking and you miss the whole relationship cycle is we say, how many of you think it's an act of cowardice? And we say, okay, well, let's give a demonstration. And you pull the pin, drop the spoon, roll the grenade. Now it's amazing. It's amazing what happens. We joke that it's always the highest ranking officer throws the lowest ranking new firefighter on top of it and everybody else runs out screaming, laughing, thank God we survived. But that's not really what happens. What happens is, is everybody goes, oh shit, excuse my language, but they all back up for a second. Said, all right, now you all have an innate 
just like our mammalian reflex, a desire to breathe and survive. Now, are any of you uh, a coward that didn't move? No, you either had your fight, flight, or your freeze mechanism, your parasympathetic mechanism. It's practice makes permanent, and you function exactly how you normally practice. It's a survival instinct. It doesn't mean you're good, right, wrong, or indifferent for not running. But all of the things that happened inside of you internally told you to get the hell out. Now, with suicide, when a first responder, when a human being, regardless of their belief, their creed, their growth, their family structure, finally gets to a point where the only opportunity for reigniting hope and control in their life is to end and override the most innate strain of survival to their very core, that's not a moment of weakness. That's a moment of hopelessness and helplessness to where Mm -hmm. they have found no other option that tomorrow could be any different. So change the way we look at it. And if you change the way you look at it now, you're going to have two questions that are going to happen. Here's the thing. It was asked to me on the day that I completed, tried to complete suicide. And my brother from the surrounding county, I worked for another fire department by fate, fate, <laughs> faith, circumstance, love. Lynn had said, my wife said, hey, could you go check on Dustin? He, therapy must be doing well. I had no idea that the last therapist just wanted to give me pills and said, I don't know how to talk to you. I've never seen anything like this. You do this for a job, you need to quit. You need to go work somewhere else. That goes real well for first responders, as you well know, and your listeners. Yeah, that's real easy. Just quit. Sure, McDonald's is hiring or Burger King, whichever your affiliation and burger joint agreement is. I didn't even tell her that I wasn't going back, you know, but she saw the change. He's really happy. He was laughing last night. Mm. Of course I was. I finally had control and was doing what I wanted to do my entire life, take care of my family. Just taking care of my family now just looks something drastically different than what I ever thought I was capable of. But I had control of nothing else. I was a failure in every way in my life, in my eyes. So she said, go check on Dustin. He's doing really good. Just stop, pop in. He wasn't crying yesterday. Therapy must be working. Boy, what an interesting perspective when you look at it now and take the pieces. Everybody has a different view of the fruit bowl from the different side of the table they're sitting on. But you can't see what the other person's looking at unless you get up, walk over, greet them, meet them where they are, and see what side of the table they're looking from. So he came by to check on me and um, interrupted me. I don't remember how I got back to the house. Uh, We've talked about it a dozen times where... I had uh, taken my boat. I was going offshore. Um, I hadn't been fishing. My used to, you know, I used to go fishing all the time and I stopped. Um, but I loaded my boat up and uh, my favorite bottle of rum, uh, 750, a 10 cane. And I was going to kick offshore, go till I ran out of gas, get in my dive gear. Uh, I had uh, 500 pounds of uh, air in the dive tank and I'd sewn every piece of lead into my BC that I had. And I was just going to get absolutely hammered drunk. And whenever I was ready and too sober to sit up, I was going to fall over face down into the west wall and sink to the bottom. That way my family could get insurance. Didn't look like I completed suicide. Looked like I had a great day. My note on the table said, I love you with all of my heart. And um, looks like I just had an accident because they wanted to take anybody shitty of my family. Wanted to be taken care of. Mm. The question that was asked that I implore people to understand and to embrace and I've seen this asked so many times in late night suicide interventions with firefighters, cops, military personnel, active and retired, that I've asked this question. We've taught people to ask this question. These two right here. And it's amazing. It was asked to me that night when my, my brother uh, from the neighboring county and he had called my, my best friend, who was my lieutenant at the time that I spent 13 years doing all this 
nitty gritty, nasty recovery work. I mean, if there was something happening across the state, we were on it. I mean, we had, we, we got signed into doing more special ops crap for departments and places we didn't belong. And then, and, and <laughs> we could shake a stick at. And, uh, they got there and, and, and the two questions that were asked was this, why didn't you tell me? Because I thought I was the only one that felt like this. The second thing was asked and stated, and it's so clear and so powerful as this, was, oh my God, you're suffering? Thank God, I thought I was the only one that thought this crap. You too? Look, the reason these two things are important are this. When somebody says, why didn't you tell me? Or they sit down and they read a suicide note, or you're holding your best friend's head up in a field. And the reason I say that is because my best friend that helped save my life David Dangerfield got in his class A almost a year later and shot himself in the head with a gun that we went and bought for his birthday. Mm. So whether you're holding your best friend's head up wanting to put their brains back in and wonder if it's a good thought or a bad thought that's on your shirt, they're going what you're going to say to your community, your county, your department, family, is the reason when you have that opportunity to say, why didn't they tell me? Well, did you ask? Or if you're struggling inside, say something. You'd be surprised. Your brothers, your sisters, your family, they're human beings too. And if you think you're protecting them, and we talk about this in the family component, don't tell your family. You know, you're only going to keep them, you're only going to hurt them if you tell them the tough calls you've gone on. Bullshit. They're human beings. You need to be as graphic and say, yeah, I pulled a a, a little girl's face out of a pool skimmer with a multi-tool because the mom overdosed and they got sucked into the pool and they've been there all night and the vacuum pressure pulled this little girl's face off. No, but they're a human being. And so are you. They entered this world unscathed and so did you. So if you can still do this job and stand and function and have an emotional impact and an opportunity to connect, that means they can hear it. And gosh darn it, they love you. So talk. If you feel it, say something. So when somebody says, why didn't you tell me? Be willing to ask. The other thing is, be willing to share. It's not your family's responsibility to do the one thing none of us can do. We can't read each other's minds. We can't. The other one is when firefighters say, oh my God, so that screwed you up too? Because I remember Dave sitting there going, holy cow, you've been having these nightmares and these struggles. All the stuff that we kept signing up for, I'd go home at night and hit my knees and cry and wonder, man, you were always so calm, Dustin. You were always the first one in to get in this greasy, nasty, bloody crap. You are always the first one to volunteer. I didn't know it was bothering you too. When you have community, when you have a group of men and women and everybody listening to this podcast that will listen to this podcast knows you will know it if you haven't realized it already as you have brothers and sisters, family. It's not a t-shirt. It's not a slogan. These are men and women that you spent a third of your life with. Think about that. A third, 30 to 35 years by your side serving under the same badge, same uniform, same creed. They're seeing the same things you are. Talk about your feelings. I'm not saying you have to be a linguistic master or an orator that's going to bring, bring people to their feet or hit them to their knees and turn their lives over to faith and family. No, but just if something bothered you, sit calmly. Don't be the asshole that just goes, no, I'm good. Be the one that says, man, I was really uncomfortable. That was heartbreaking. That was sad. I just really want to call my kids and I don't know why. Even if you're not emotionally intelligent, you know when you physically feel wrong. Say something. You have a community around you. That community has saved my life and will save yours if you engage with it. 
But just remember, rule two doesn't work if you don't recognize rule one. Mm-hmm. Rule two is you have a community that loves you. Rule one is nobody can read your damn mind. Yeah. So communicate, connect. You know, the painful part of that is my brother is now chief um, in a neighboring county uh, and David, who's since passed in uh, October 2016. Um, you know, both were huge fans. When I said we can do better, when I finally found a clinician that, that understood what mental health is for first responders, didn't flinch. And I love saying this. They didn't flinch when we unloaded our hearts to them um, and was able to get, you know, real genuine modalities of care uh, that fit. And look, firefighters, law enforcement officers, veterans, keep an open mind. Man, yoga, tactical breathing, grounding exercises, meditation. If you'd have told me that when I entered 20 years ago, I had laughed only because the other people were laughing because we were uncomfortable with it. Yeah. It saved your life. Only save your life, allow you to live and thrive, which is even better than just making it day by day. It's the best. Doesn't mean you're going to be pain free. Doesn't mean you're not going to have struggles, but damn it, and allow you to thrive. David and Will helped me thrive. They made sure I got to my culturally confident appointments every single day and sat in there. The hardship, the heartbreak of it is we said we can do better. And, and years ago, what's amazing is just last week, everything came to fruition. Years ago, I said, we need to put this in minimum standards. Two sentences to talk about feeling, suicide prevention, awareness, peer support. That's bullcrap. We need to have a block. Heck, we have 20-something hours on origami. And I say that jokingly. It was tarp folding, salvage cover folding. I'm like, why are we putting that much emphasis on how to fold the tarp? Why are we talking about feelings? What suicide looks like? What suicide ideation is? We need to tell some people. You know, we spend so much time on, on you know, nozzle management. What about emotional management? Not just management, but being able to walk and work with it. Why don't we put that in there? Why don't we have peer supporters across the state that can acknowledge when a first responder is suicide, identify them with the right training, know what questions to ask, and know where to refer them to? Why don't we have IOP facilities and culturally competent clinicians that we have relationships with pre-crisis? And I remember standing up in front of a department. But you build a relationship ahead of time. And I remember sitting, you know, in front of a department that at the time in Inner County Rescue uh, came from the dark ages. Phenomenal now. Administration, chiefs, leadership, company officers, firefighters that get minimum standards that have mental health and resiliency and suicide prevention education in the appropriate vernacular and delivery vehicle. Man, when somebody has a tough time now, it's the exact opposite of what we were always taught. Oh, you're suicidal? You'll get fired. You cry? You're out. You have an addiction? We'll fire you. No, what we realized is, holy cow, when people are educated and aware and see it, their own brother and sister in their own uniform through our own eyes, man, what a powerful, powerful community that will fight till the end to make sure you get help. doesn't mean it's always a win, but it means we're damn sure going to be a win that will drive you to the right port. And then Redline Rescue, putting it all in one spot. We just released Redline Rescue last week with the University of Central Florida. Nonprofit sector that takes those culturally competent clinicians, peer providers, and education, puts it in one spot and location and gives it to the consumer, to the first responder, firefighter, law enforcement officer, dispatcher, victim's advocate, wildland firefighter, corrections. Allows them to go to that and access all of those resources at no cost to the end user. And man, when we're talking about things like this on podcasts, yeah, about suicide, look. Yeah, 
it's not about you haven't been on the job long enough. You shouldn't have PTSD. Look, everybody's going to experience PTS, post-traumatic stress. An event will happen. It's going to be traumatic, and you're going to experience stress. could be distress or eustress. And if you don't think it's true, then get the hell out of that uniform. But if you acknowledge that you're going to experience a call that's going to be emotionally impactful to you when the musical notes line up right, and it doesn't mean it has to go to post-traumatic stress disorder or dysfunction. There is an opportunity for post-traumatic growth. Somebody goes, well, that's bullshit. You know, no calls bother me. <laughs> that's not <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> that's not true. Wow. Well, you're yeah. a great poker player and you're a liar. And I don't, I don't believe either one of them. So let's take a look at this for a second. How many hospice calls have we run on that never bothered us? Hundreds of them. You go in, you get the right form, make sure that it's the pink one, not the yellow one. And you wait for them to take their last breath and we don't transport dead bodies and you're on your way thought it was always ridiculous. In fact, you hear them to the hospice house, and when you first go, you're ready to treat the patient. You realize there's no treatment you can give the patient other than kindness. But at the time, as a young firefighter, that doesn't register. It's stupid. Why are we here? Let's like, you know, something needs to be burning. Something needs to be traumatic. Something like this doesn't make sense. Well, that never bothered me until my wife had stage three lymphatic cancer. And you watch your wife go through almost two years of radiation and chemo and every day turns into 50 first dates where you have to wear a name tag. She doesn't remember who you are. Yeah. Now go run a hospice call. But sure. It didn't bother you. Then I hit my knees and threw up outside after the call because the musical notes meant something. Does it mean that you're going to be a crappy company officer? No, nobody saw it. Nobody knew we let him in. We did the job. We gave instruction, established authority, provided a service, gave kindness, and left. You can still have an emotional reaction, an impact to you, even if nobody else sees it. The powerful thing that you have through community and connectivity, whether you're struggling with suicidal ideation or you've switched to intent and you're creating a plan, is you have the ability to reach out and connect, to be openly honest. Listen, every one of us on here, even you, after all of your years of service and servitude, if you were in... Lowe's or Home Depot right now and a gunshot was fired. Somebody grabbed their chest and hit the floor like a guppy and had a heart attack. Somebody overdosed. Somebody had a medical condition. Somebody rammed their car and hit somebody and they were stuck underneath it. You respond to a stranger that you don't even know, risking life for them, assessing the odds to make the safest decision possible to help stabilize the situation. You'll do that for a stranger. So for everybody out there, do it for the men and women that you work alongside that you know. Yeah, that, that's a very, very good point. And uh, let, let's do this. I, I have a few questions for you, if you don't mind. Sure, you got absolutely. Okay. But let me go ahead and, and talk about FHE Health one more time. So this episode is sponsored by FHE Health. FHE Health has been providing life-changing behavioral health services for more than 20 years. They treat substance abuse and mental health disorders in an individualized and comprehensive approach. Recognizing the specialized treatment needs of the first responder community, they've created Shatterproof, a dedicated program for law enforcement, fire rescue, and similar communities to receive treatment among peers. They're experienced in providing privacy and working with unions for employment. FHE Health is committed to providing the best care experience for our patients, for their families, and for our community. Learn more at FHEHealth.com. Now, um, what I wanted to ask you, so you've mentioned several times um, this idea of culturally competent uh, providers. Okay, now mm-hmm. in the program that I'm in, I'm in a, another graduate program for addictions and co-occurring disorders. And this term culturally appropriate comes up mm-hmm. quite a bit. 
What does that mean to you? And because you've mentioned it several times. So for listeners, what do you mean by culturally competent uh, provider? So, you know, we've had a lot of people ask this over, over the years here. And uh, one of the most moving ways that uh, it, it has been explained is uh, shared and common experiences is what makes community. Uh, and, you know, when we first started working with first responders and finding out, you know, about the, the nitty gritty, why, why, why wasn't the services that were offered successful? One of the common things that happens up happens when you don't have a provider, a clinician, for lack of a better word, and we'll use the term first responder, providing care to a first responder. And those first couple sessions where the relationship building exercise is starting before we dive into the trauma, uh, if the sessions are explained around things like, well, I don't understand, so you can't come to me every Monday for your marriage counseling, your marriage must not be important. No, how about understanding that that firefighter is on a shift calendar and they're working 24 hours on and 48 hours off. And they can't come every Monday, but they can come two Mondays, but the third one they're going to miss. And it doesn't mean that they're not applying the relationship skills. It means that they have a shift calendar. Okay, well, I need you to go ahead and set your appointment. It needs to be every day at four o'clock. Okay, well, how about you understand they work 24-hour periods and not being dismissive of the modality that you're offering. They can't. Or if they're talking about an internal stressor and rank and file, understanding that you just can't tell your boss to, to kiss your ass. You're in a paramilitary organization. Or if you don't like doing a certain job, the regular recommendation is if you don't like doing something, kind of like when you're, you, you have a patient go, hey, when I lift my arm, my shoulder hurts. See, when I lift it like this, it hurts. Well, answer is easy. Don't lift your arm like that. Let's get you some help. With working with first responders of having that cultural competency and understanding of the lingo, the language, and the lifestyle of being in that field and the impacts that is not like general population rank, file, structure, exposures, hazards, all of those things are continually re-immersed and exposed in the line of duty. The recommendation of remove yourself from the hazard, it's deeper intertwined in the tapestry of that first responder than just don't do that. So what we saw is, is when we, we were giving cultural competency courses for on the fire side, on getting them in the, the bunker gear, having an immersive experience of doing, you know, 24 and 48 hour ride times pre-crisis, um, getting into the simulated Hollywood smoke, getting involved in actual extrications, getting involved in station interactions and seeing the dichotomy and the, the, the diversity of uh, the rank and file paramilitary organization, the pecking order, the response times, the impact of continually going through stasis to activity and then back to stasis, what that does and how it impacts the biophysiology of that first responder. Now, when a first responder comes in, they're not spending all of these sessions going, well, what do you mean you have three refrigerators? So you guys eat dinner together? When you take a shower, is it like Chicago fire? Are you all showering together, soaping each other up? No, it's understanding that this is a, a third of their life and they do have two completely different lifestyles and impacts. What happens is now they dive right into the trauma and that clinician isn't out to ask the common questions that were prohibitive to the, the, the link of care of, hey, uh, what's the worst thing you ever saw? Firefighters don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about what's bothering them. They're going to give you a few smatterings of other things and they're going to dive in. Teaching the clinicians not to flinch when they're used to having patients come in that have one, two, three traumas in their life that more often than not are impactful and life-altering the way they interact with society. Your first responders come to you and they're going to have hundreds if not thousands of those and even more dangerously, more often than not, don't specifically see all of those calls as a contributing traumatic factor, which makes it even that more dynamic. 
So realizing that when you have your first responder come in, look, don't, they're not, don't treat them like they're some weird herpes infested superhero as a bunch of trauma. Just recognize they have a very deep river that runs through them of trauma. They are drawn to that lifestyle, not because they want to see people hurt, but because they want to do better, be in control and help those things to neutralize threat and harm. And it makes your approach the way you interact, the way you speak, the way you listen, completely different. So when we create a culturally competent clinical pool, we now have clinicians. And this, the second cool thing that happened there is that have built common life experiences operated within that circle pre-crisis. And what we found is firefighters now run when they have those relationships with those clinicians before the crisis, run to them and talk about the feelings, talk about the emotions, talk about the impact. And we didn't expect that. When we started that in Florida in 2016, the cultural awareness program through the Florida Firefighter Safety and Health Collaborative, and we did not realize how important it was to create clinician response teams. Having those teams of clinicians take those classes, get in the stations, do the ride times, become one of us ahead of time, ahead of trauma, and then boom, we, we have uh, a Stoneman Douglas shooting happen right in the heart of Coral Springs, right where we have the health and safety collaborative founded right where our first CRT team was. You know, we, we had Becky Transic and Sean Kahn and Andrea Santiago as the three clinician response teams that had this diverse, close, tight-knit relationship pre-crisis. was already seeing firefighters for individual issues and family issues ahead of time. Then we have a national news event, tragic loss of life, a horrific impact to the county, country, and community. And we have the CRT team embedded. It was amazing. Yeah, I think that's I, I think that's so important because I know when I first came into uh, recovery myself, and I was going and I and I was seeing people. That was that was what hit me the most was I felt I felt like a lot of these clinicians were trying. I think they were trying to understand me and understand my culture, but it was clear that they didn't. And so I spent. I felt like I was spending a lot of time educating them on, okay, first, before you can try to help me, you need to understand me, my lifestyle, because my lifestyle is not what you think. You know, it's not mm -hmm. like the movies, and, and these were, and I could tell that there was a lot of presuppositions and feelings about what I was doing that were incorrect, and, and it just lost credibility with me. It was, it mm -hmm. was clear these people did not understand what my life was like and and mm -hmm. it didn't so i if you're a if you're a healthcare provider and you're listening to this program i would suggest that if you're going to take on clients that are first responders really immerse yourself in the life go out and see if you can't get into some sort of a program where you can do a ride along or spend time mm -hmm. at stations and, and just spend time around first responders not not when they're seeing you is, is, is clients, but get to know them beforehand and know the culture and know the lifestyle and understand why it's a closed off society. And I think that you'll understand it. And I know that when people come to see you um, and you have a better understanding of it, they will sense that and, and you'll be more successful. But I absolutely agree that the time of crisis is really not the time to build that relationship. It's best to have that relationship beforehand. So they feel comfortable Absolutely. in coming talking to you. So I'm glad to hear you say that because in the program that I'm in, that I'm working through right now, when they use the term cultural competence, there's always this discussion of uh, uh, race, sex, sexual preference, uh, people from different cultures around the world. And it wasn't until, <laughs> to be honest with you, I don't think it was until I came into the program and I said, but what about jobs? What about like first responders? And they, they looked at me and they're like, uh... 
Well, I guess never really thought of it, but that's an important thing because culture and lifestyle is this as well. People don't understand that the first responder community is a lifestyle in and of itself. And if you are a healthcare provider, mental healthcare provider, or an addictions counselor, you really need to understand it. Now, I'll tell you, if you want uh, to be if you want to contact me or contact Dustin to figure out how you can do that, please please do that. Reach out to one of us, and we, we can help you. I'd love to help you down that road, wouldn't you? Absolutely, 100%. And that's if we can direct them, and we have those cultural competency courses here in the state of Florida with the Florida Firefighter Safety and Health Collaborative and UCF Restores and UCF. Um, it is amazing, and, and the resources are there. They, we have the ride-along forms. We have the upcoming cultural competency classes that are held uh, twice a quarter that are a two-day immersive event. That it's, it's more than just getting the experience and hands-on. It's teaching you the hierarchy, the local departments, making those connections and redirections to where you can work and, and have that ability to immerse yourself pre-crisis in the department in your area. And any barriers you have, we're more than happy to help break those down for you. Well, I really appreciate that. Dust, I really enjoy you joining us today. Uh, just a lot of really good information. So thanks again for joining us. And how Thank can people how can people contact you? Do you have so, a number, uh, email site or a, a Yep, a I can be website? accessed if you guys log on to the Florida Firefighter Safety and Health Collaborative. Uh, you can uh, access all the information to get a hold of us there, as well as redlinerescue.org, which uh, is sponsored through UCF and UCF Restores. I'm accessible through both of those routes, and we have a lot of resources. If I don't have the answer, I'm a huge fan of Collaborative Approach. We will get you somebody who has the answer, and we look forward to hearing from everybody and appreciate this podcast, the support from FHE and FHE Health, and all of the listeners that are dedicating themselves to first responder health, safety, and wellness. Remember, you can't read a mind, but you can connect with it. And we're looking forward to all the lives that you can change with ripple effects of your kindness and generosity. Oh, thank you so much. So well said. Well, Dustin, thank you so much. And folks, once again, if I uh, have said anything here today that you don't agree with or Dustin said anything that you didn't agree with, just discard that, but try to take something that we have talked about today to use it to help yourself and help others as well, because that's what we do in recovery. We help others by helping ourselves. And so with that, please visit our Facebook page, which is Recovery is Possible, and our website, VanMeterWellnessSolutions.com. And let me know how I'm doing. Let me know if there's a topic that you're interested in hearing about, because I'd love to hear from you. Don't forget about our sponsor, FHEHealth.com. That's FHEHealth.com, and we will be seeing you guys soon. Thank you.